I'm Spencer Levy, and this is The Weekly Take. There may be no demographic that's been harder hit by the pandemic than our seniors. On this episode, we're going to learn more about senior living communities and how the real estate business is solving challenges for the present and future of this important sector. We've really had to take people out of the fear mode. In every function across our communities, we've had to adapt and pivot and add additional protocols to our service to seniors. That's Joel Nelson, who runs LCS, which owns, develops, or manages 139 senior living facilities, housing some 40,000 residents across 31 states, making it one of the nation's largest companies in the sector. Joel joins us from the LCS headquarters in Des Moines, Iowa. People are active for much longer, and definitely, I think, you know, 85 is the new 60. And that's Lisa Widmeyer, Executive Vice President of Senior Housing Capital Markets at CBRE. Lisa has been involved in deals worth more than $12 billion in her distinguished career. She joins us from her home in La Jolla, California. We're talking about senior housing. That's right now on The Weekly Take. Welcome to The Weekly Take. And this week, we're going to talk about senior housing, an asset class that's certainly been in the news a lot recently. And to join us, we have Joel Nelson, the president and CEO of LCS. Joel, welcome. Thank you, Spencer. Good to be with you. Good to have you here. And it's also good to have my great friend and colleague, Lisa Widmeyer, who leads our senior housing practice. Lisa, thanks for joining us. Hello. It's great to be here. Thank you. Great to have you both here. And we're here to talk about senior housing. And I think it's fair to say that there has been some challenges in the senior housing industry recently, in large part because of the vulnerability of some of the senior population living there. Joel, can you give us an update on how things have been going during COVID-19 and what LCS is trying to do to make things better? Well, thank you, Spencer. And COVID has been a disruption to senior living, but I think it's it's not as as grand as what we might hear in the in the press or the media, et cetera. Um, you know, the, the the reality is is that COVID has impacted our communities, those with skilled nursing, acute care facilities, and then we at LCS have a full continuum of care and assisted living, memory care, independent living. But the reality is, is you know, less than one percent of our seniors uh, were impacted by the actual disease itself. And as you look at that, where the efforts and the disruption has come is all of the things we've had to do to reinvent ourselves and mobilize and create the safe environments for both our employees and our residents. And that's started from the very beginning, uh, really in the first phase where we've, we've really had to take people out of the fear mode. You know, how dangerous is it? And we've treated it, it is, absolutely dangerous with the age cohort that we serve. So it's really required in every function across our communities, we've had to adapt and pivot and add additional protocols to our service to seniors. Well, Joel, if you don't mind, if you could just give us a few more specifics on what some of those new protocols might be and how they might differ for different assets in the continuum of care. Sure. Just to name a few, uh, the infection control procedures, Uh, PPE is real in senior living where all of the direct caregivers, social distancing is key. And probably the biggest impact to our communities is the need for us to not allow visitors into the communities. And that's going to be the story of this game until there's a vaccine 
And I think even past vaccine is where we will be in full quarantine, no visitation. We'll free that up. We may have to tighten it back up during the flu season. Or again, like I say, the numbers change in a, in a certain region. And Joe, one quick follow-up question. Uh, I, I don't think we answered where your assets are located. So give me a little, a little bit of a geographic breakdown if you can. Basically in 31 states, but the, the primary regions would be a large nucleus of communities in the Midwest. Uh, Chicago is a, a large uh, metro area where we have uh, 12 communities with two more in the development stages. And then uh, Northeast, Mid-Atlantic, Southeast, and Southwest are primary uh, markets. Any one of these regions more or less impacted by COVID-19? Well, uh, certainly the more suburban uh, regions that we have have been uh, less, but it's interesting that you asked that question. I don't know how you could put a finger on it. Our first uh, COVID positive was uh, five miles from Kirkland, Washington, the first community that came out public that had had a diagnosis. And uh, that particular community really has been one of the most successful after the first few COVID positives. I think some markets where we've seen higher positive rates certainly are Florida-based communities. We've seen some major outbreaks. Uh, in addition to that, I would say the Midwest, uh, Michigan has been a tough state to manage and uh, uh, the COVID outbreaks as well. And so those two in particular, but listen, I, I think it could happen to any one of our 139 communities. It's uh, just a matter of, of a little bit of luck and a, and a lot of preparation and, and uh, preventative. Well, Lisa, you've been in the senior housing business for a long time. I want you to tell our listeners a little bit about your background, but also tell them how your business has been impacted by COVID-19. Okay. Our practice is focused mainly on institutional investors. Uh, as a result of COVID, we decided to put all of our offerings on hold temporarily back in March, but we're now out in the market. As of the last three weeks, we've got uh, several hundred million in the market we closed uh, an asset on Friday at uh, six and a half cap uh, pricing. So people are looking definitely in the sector. So Lisa, let me ask you a question about the continuum of care if I can. And this is going to be a little, we're going to take a step back for a moment because not everybody listening to this call is a senior housing expert, but just walk through the various types of senior housing and how they're looked at differently, pricing or otherwise, by the capital markets. Okay, I'm going to start from the product type with the healthiest uh, residents, and we call it the least acuity, and that would be age-restricted apartments, also known as active adult communities. Um, then we go to independent living congregate care. Congregate care essentially means that there's a commercial kitchen and common dining room, uh, as well as other you know, transportation services, activities, etc. Then we go to assisted living, congregate care, and that's where the resident needs some assistance with everyday activities, such as dressing or bathing or uh, med reminder, eater, eating, etc. They're much more frail. And then we also have uh, dementia care, memory care, and that's for folks with cognitive uh, issues. And then the highest acuity is skilled nursing, as we all probably understand that asset class. And LCS is known for their, what we call CCRCs, Continuing Care Retirement Communities. And that community will provide all of these 
levels of service and uh, accommodation on one campus. Well, Lisa, let's dig into pricing for just an, a moment here. CBRE is coming out with our cap rate survey this week. And in fact, what the cap rate survey said was there wasn't as much movement in cap rates as people thought. That said, because of NOI changes, operating cost changes, there has been some impact on value. Lisa, how has value been impacted in the senior housing space pre and post COVID? Well, for the stabilized assets, the cap rates really haven't changed all that much, but returns have gone down to investors because of the the fact that you can only get, say, 50% leverage, uh, you know, versus 65% leverage in the logical world, as you know, debt is less expensive than equity. Um, so the average cost of capital is impacting our, our pricing. The reason I'm saying that cap rates haven't been all that impacted is that I think people are looking at operating cost associated with COVID and taking a portion of those out of the expenses because they're saying this is not a permanent impact. Well, I think it's fair to say, Lisa, not only in the senior housing sector, but across the board, cap rates haven't moved that much for stabilized product. But what we don't have price discovery into yet is that distressed pricing. Will cap rates move? Certainly NOI may have moved, but we don't know where pricing is going. Uh, would you agree with that, Joel? I would agree with that. And and first of all, there's not enough transaction volume really to, to, to reach any conclusions yet. But you know, it is encouraging, as Lisa reports, we've seen capital come back into the development stages, and then we're seeing some deals that were tabled um, initially with COVID coming back onto the market, and we're not seeing a lot of pricing change in terms of expectation and buyer interest. Yeah, and I think on that last point, buyer interest, Lisa, you would agree that not only is there strong buyer interest, but there's some new buyer interest, meaning some institutions and other investors that had not traditionally invested in the space. Yeah, there's a lot of new capital that's reallocating from theaters and retail centers, convention hotels into the space. And that's not only just for domestic capital, but we're seeing an uptick in global interest in the United States senior housing market. So uh, we're pretty optimistic about uh, 2021. Joel, let's go back to the operational issues for just a moment if we can. What are you doing about new admissions, new new clients coming into your facilities? Has that How has that been impacted? Well, uh, again, you, you have to look back to pre-COVID uh, or very beginning stages of COVID. It was dramatically impacted. We actually started off and really implemented the first phase of limited visitation. And it all again, it all depended on region and, and positive rates, uh, positive uh, testing rates. The reality is over 50% of our communities have never had COVID. Uh, today, we're at a whole different part of the game. We today have one community that's not allowing new admissions, and that's because we actually had a positive uh, occurrence in, in last week. And so we've pulled back and said we're going to go back to virtual tours in that community just for the safety and protection of those residents living there today. And we'll make sure that that doesn't uh, turn into an outbreak. That's the one thing we have learned. If you are not proactive, it's going to have dramatic impacts for some period of time on admissions and, and new residents moving in. Well, Joel, let's dig a little bit deeper into some of the factors that play into an attractive investment or not in the senior housing space. And you mentioned one of those factors, which is critical mass, having 150 rooms or more. But there are other factors. There are factors having to do with um, government reimbursement. There are factors having to do with the configuration of the space, given what's changed with COVID. 
being more or less attractive because people have independent units versus not. Uh, and then there are other factors of just getting it approved in the local community. What are some of these other factors, digging one level below, that you look at when you're trying to do a new investment in the space? One of the things on the, the reimbursement, that is an area that's very important for those communities that have skilled nursing care as part of the, the continuum. But um, in our portfolio, we rely very little on government reimbursement, Medicare reimbursement. So we're predominantly a private pay uh, business. What we do and we look at, we want to see the demographics of those residents, but not only the residents themselves, where are the kids living? And today, uh, we, with our development company, are predominantly focused on high barrier of entry. It doesn't have to be Manhattan, New York, or downtown Chicago um, in the city for a development, but certainly those infill markets. And most of that is it's complex, it's more expensive, and it also typically provides the demographics for larger population in, in, the, in the communities. And that's, that's really where we are, we are focusing uh, with new development efforts. Well, let me go back to the word you just used a moment ago, Joel, demographics, and how key that is to the space. And I think it's fair to say that demographics are all pointing in the senior housing direction uh, because of an, an aging population. Uh, but at the same time, there might be factors pushing the other way. And I'm talking about technological factors that can allow people to stay in their homes longer. Lisa, I'm going to turn this question to you. How do you look at these factors when you are trying to determine what is a sale um, that you're taking to market? Well, you know, I think the senior housing model is more valid today than ever. And I think it's very difficult to replace the in-person uh, lifestyle and friendship that happens in a community with an online technical experience. You know, I, I look at my parents who are home alone and, uh, you know, they are lonely and they also are scared to go to the grocery store. You know, what if my dad gets the flu? You know, he's scared to go to the clinic. So I, I think, you know, providing security, nourishment and, and care in a secure environment uh, that the senior housing communities offers is very relevant, if not more so today. So I don't see the technology impacting our sector or the demand for actually living in a senior housing community or investing in it for that matter. Let me talk a little bit from personal experience for just a moment. Okay, my grandma Bess, I moved her from her apartment in Rigo Park, Queens to a, uh, I don't believe it was assisted living. I think it was independent living facility in White Plains, New York when she was 95 years old. And I moved her because she lost mobility. She couldn't get around. And there was the loneliness factor, everything you just mentioned, Lisa. But if Uber and Lyft were around and one day self-driving cars are around, and what about telemedicine coming around? So, Joel, let me, let me ask you that question. Do these technological factors make a difference to you? Because, quite candidly, they made a difference to me because if some of those things were around, maybe I would have waited a little longer to put my grandmother in one of these facilities. I think I tend to be over on Lisa's side with this one, Spencer, um, obviously. I mean, to your point, it's the need-based residents, okay? The need-based residents, is it going to be offset? I think it'll be augmented by telemedicine, but you still cannot replace the social uh, interaction, the relationship, and the full continuum. I mean, security to know that if your grandmother falls at night in her independent living home, 
Uber's not going to come and pick her up. At least you probably don't want Uber coming to pick her up. And then the second part is, is do you really want grandmother to go to the hospital in the acute? Or if they're living in a retirement community, those care and services are available. And statistically, we show the admissions and readmission rates into those acute care settings is much lower living in a senior living community. So I think it goes back to what you're trying to achieve. And then the isolation factor is one thing that's been highlighted very bright with COVID. And it'll say that, you know, over 70% of the, the folks living independently in their homes are suffering through health complications as a result of isolation. In senior living, you can maintain that purpose, but yet maintain your independence. Well, let me go back to an episode we had uh, about three or four weeks ago. We had on here the CEO of American Campus Communities, Bill Bayless, who uh, for student housing. And we also had Jacqueline Fitz, one of our terrific professionals who focuses on the space. And one of the things that they said was that there's going to be a replacement cycle uh, with respect to some of these units because many of them are congregate. They have common um, cafeterias. They have common bathrooms. And it and it's caused a challenge in the student housing space, certainly moving towards that independent living for investment purposes. So let me first turn to you, Lisa, talking about that challenge. Do you think, uh, as it relates to COVID, because people living uh, close to one another, do you think that's a temporary issue or will that lead to a permanent change in the design of some of these facilities? Well, I think, and Joel, uh, like to get your input, but we, for example, we were selling a, a standalone memory care community. We've, we've pulled it off the market. Um, that was 85% shared rooms and it was memory care. Now that model is, is a very difficult model in, in today's world of pandemics, et cetera, because it's very hard to control the disease and the outbreak. So I think the trend towards more private units and certainly units with private baths, et cetera, is going to be very, very, very relevant. And I do see that certain communities will be deemed obsolete where they have shared bathrooms and high degree of shared units. I would just add to that. I think the good fortunes of the senior living leadership in the industry as a whole have been moving away from shared semi-private rooms, shared bathing units, et cetera. For a number of years, that's probably been repositionings and repurposing communities for the last 10 plus years to address that very issue. I don't know that we were all doing it in anticipation of a pandemic, but it worked out uh, to the to the favor. And I think there's other things to do with the whole design. You know, visitation space is big. Uh, common space will be uh, repurposed. I think as we as we look forward and really look back at what we've learned through through COVID. Well, let me ask you a, uh, which is a little bit a demographic question, but I'm going to talk about an, uh, my demographic, Gen Xers. And I will tell you, I turned 50 about three weeks ago. And last week, this, re- this is a true story. I'm at the grocery store. And of course, I'm wearing a mask and I'm wearing my readers. And they gave me a senior citizen discount. No questions asked. Now, uh, I was a little surprised to get that. But nevertheless, 50 used to be the age when you started thinking about senior housing and AARP and things like that. Has that changed? Has it gotten older or is it about the same? Uh, Lisa, what do you think? Oh, it's definitely gotten older. Definitely gotten older. I have a group of, of gal friends that are all in their 60s and we cycle together and I can't keep up. 
So, you know, health, health is much better. People are, are active for much longer. And definitely, I think, you know, 85 is the new 60. That's right. And I, I think really, if we point to why is that, it is the focus on wellness and well-being of all of us today. I think in general, taking better care of ourselves, there are more options as it relates to wellness. Um, of which have been become a, a, a real uh, vital part of our communities. Uh, my mother-in-law is in her late 70s. You know, I used to give her a hard time because she used to spend at least two hours a day in the wellness facility. And it wasn't having coffee and chatting. She was on the treadmill, the balance bubbles, I mean, multiple events. So this all plays to the favor of what I think is the future. But to your point, um, you know, our market, Spencer, is, is the average age of a resident moving into our communities would be late 70s. Got it. So um, I shouldn't be looking forward to any more senior discounts at the grocery store or brochure uh, from you, Joel, uh, anytime soon. <laughs> Let me talk now a little bit from a resident's perspective. Walk through uh, some of the options that people have. Uh, if they want to go into a senior center, how do they pay for it? In our case, in the CCRC product, uh, that's the full continuum. Those residents really have been the planners, not necessarily the rich and wealthy, retired school teachers, pension players, et cetera, but they have planned and they have saved in order to give them the opportunity to have the option to move in because it's private pay. We target $50,000 of annual income and above in all of our markets, and in many of them, it's 75000 and above. So I think it depends on the income class that you're really you're you're targeting to to serve. So I'm going to get a, a very nitty gritty for just a moment now because I think that there's a generational shift from the silent generation and baby boomers to my generation, Gen X, and certainly younger, which is that most people don't have pensions anymore. Yeah. Mo- most people now have 401k plans. Uh, is that going to impact the senior housing industry over the long term? Uh, what do you think, Joel? Well, I, I think it depends who you talk to, uh, Spencer. If you talk to the uh, large 401k providers and administrators, they'll say the savings rate is higher than it's ever been. Whether it got started early enough, that may be a, a debatable point, but we all want best for mom or dad, right? And so the generations, we'll see in many situations where the family, you know, each kid will pay $200 a month towards the, the, the monthly fee of mom or dad, but they're doing that to ensure that their mother or father is in the best place, is able to stay in the same neighborhood that they were at or to live and move across the country to be close to their daughter or son. And I think so there's a lot of family participation that uh, comes in to support those residents that may need that support. Hey, Joel, um, do you see a high incidence of people with long term care insurance? No, but we do see, uh, and, it, and that's kind of market-driven, Lisa. It's a great question. Some markets will be heavier that, that are educated. And again, the planners that have that discretionary. I think the long-term care insurance, my own personal opinion, it is great for the middle. The lower and the higher don't need it. That middle income is a very good target, and those buyers or those long-term care insurance providers, which is a big help, to be able to offset those costs that that pay me more than what their monthly income would provide for. Well, let me dig into an element of it. It was referenced briefly having to do with government reimbursement. Um, Let's assume we're wrong. And how the government comes in to 
pay for some of these things. Now, I want to I want to address that first from a capital markets perspective, Lisa, in terms of private pay versus government assisted. Uh, there is a difference in pricing of how the capital markets look at those. Isn't that correct? Uh, absolutely. Absolutely. Our practice is primarily focused on the private pay market. However, uh, CBRE has a very robust UK and global senior housing practice. Uh, and in, in the UK, the government pays for senior housing. And the, the, it's a completely different setup in that basically those communities are long-term leased by the, the provider and the investors are really investing in a triple net leased property. But they're also are not as luxurious as our communities. It's, it's not seen as a place you really want to go. Um, so rather than more security because government's paying, there's a perceived higher risk in investing in a community where the government is the primary payer because they can change the reimbursement rates, you know, tomorrow. And it, it can, you know, it can destroy 100% of your profitability. Joel, from your perspective, how's the government done and, and what more would you like to see from them to help support not just the industry as a whole, but senior housing? Well, I, I think the, uh, the PPP program that came out initially was a big help. And I, you can't take away um, without gratitude all that the government really has done. And, and I say that, and then I'm going to turn around and say, but it's woefully short, um, really, of what's needed. You know, we've got a long road to recovery in this battle, but at the same point, um, you, you can't uh, say nothing but thanks for what we have received. It's been very helpful, and in some cases, very timely, uh, particularly this last round of funding that was released. And we hear that there's a distribution number three that's forthcoming. In fact, the applications just opened up for that today. So I remained optimistic, and I think the, the Hill hears us, they better understand who senior living is and what we do. And that's really what we've been doing since COVID hit. And now I think we're starting to see uh, some attention to the senior living space. I echo Joel's comments on government support. Uh, I think the best thing that the government can do is uh, get that vaccine <laughs> developed. And then I would say that it would be great if the government would provide the vaccine to, to the residents and to the staff. I think that's crucial. Now let's turn to the cost of labor and availability of labor, and how does that factor into the valuation of a senior housing facility? Pre-COVID, in markets like Denver that had an unemployment rate of just less than 2%, it was very difficult to find people to work at the communities, and as a result, uh, providers were paying higher rates, which caused the payroll costs to go up significantly at most communities. And you also had states that had increased the minimum wage, like California. And it was difficult to keep your community staffed and you ended up having to use temporary help that cost you two and a half times a permanent employee. And it was a big issue. Now, post-COVID, uh, obviously unemployment has, has really skyrocketed in, in many markets. And so we should be able to attract more people, but then you've got the inherent fear of you know, sort of the unknown you see the news reports of people getting COVID in the seniors housing community. So it's a little harder to attract uh, labor than it should be. Um, but uh, I think it's actually, uh, you know, going forward, it's going to enable us to recruit and to retain more employees at the community level at a more affordable rate. Let's ask a wrap-up question. What is going to be different about the senior housing industry 10 years from now than where it is today? Starting with you, Joel. 
That's a great question. First of all, uh, 10 years from now, we're going to have 10 million more seniors that are going to be 75 and above. So I think from a market perspective, we're going to see a lot more need out there uh, for us to serve. Secondly, um, we touched on it earlier. I think uh, senior living is going to be closely tied to the overall wellness model and uh, where purposeful lives can be lived. You may be working at that grocery store that you're going through when you're, you're 70 years old, or you may be going back to the university or the, the you know, they're numerous. You may be going back and working part-time, but you're still gonna want a home and a, and a home surrounded by a lifestyle that complements where your interests are. Um, no doubt about it, 10 years from now, technology is gonna play a real change. Um, a lot of people talk about robotics, um, uh, being a little old school, having been in this uh, space for the last uh, close to 35 years, I get troubled by, are we really going to replace direct caregivers or direct providers of service with robotics? And the answer to that, I hope, is not entirely, but we're having some success with robotics that are actually, as an example, with infection control that are actually doing all of the floor care and the vacuuming, et cetera, in those communities. They can do it much more frequently at a much lesser cost. That's a type of technology and many others that we have to discover because it's gonna to have to offset what I believe is going to be an increase in the overall labor cost in our communities. Telemedicine is going to be a piece Residents are going to want more choice. The baby boomers want greater choice. It isn't going to change. I think there's going to be more choice, but it's going to have to remain focused on what's home-like for that resident. So on behalf of The Weekly Take, I want to thank both Joel Nelson, the president and CEO of LCS, for joining us. Joel, thank you very much. Thank you, Spencer. It's been a pleasure. Well, thank you, Joel. And Lisa Widmeyer, an EVP in Senior Housing Capital Markets at CBRE. Lisa, terrific job, and thank you for joining us. Thank you. For more information, go to CBRE backslash The Weekly Take. Until next time, I'm Spencer Levy. Be smart, be safe, be well. Be well.